Five, four, three, two, one, and cue them up in the mic. Hi, I'm Lori Bednar, Administrative Clerk in the School of Media and Journalism and Student Media, and this is Around the Sphere. Welcome to Around the Sphere, the podcast of the School of Media and Journalism at Kent State University, produced and recorded by MDJ's students, faculty, and staff, just for you. Hey everyone, welcome back to Around the Sphere. For today's episode, we'll be doing things a little bit differently. As you've probably heard, an investigation is underway after a film crew member died and director was injured after Alec Baldwin discharged a prop firearm on the set of the movie Rust on October 21st, 2021. On today's episode, we will be hearing a conversation from November 3rd, 2021 between three faculty members from the School of Media and Journalism about this event, including the set safety that could have prevented the tragic death of Helena Hudgens and injury of Joel Souza, journalistic approaches to the story and trauma that was endured on the set, as well as the public relations implications for all involved and the best way to communicate during a crisis. Hi, my name is Maddie Haberberger, and I am a journalism major here at Kent State. And today I'm fortunate enough to interview three of our MDJ professors about this tragic situation. I want to thank all of you guys for being here and taking the time to discuss this. And if you could please go around and introduce yourselves and explain your expertise related to the situation for the audience. Hi, my name is Christopher Knobloch. I'm a lecturer here at uh, Kent State. My background is I come here from television where for a number of years I worked as a cinematographer and a camera operator in network television, and I'm a film director. Hi, my name is Dr. Gretchen Hoke, and I am an assistant professor of journalism at Kent State. And my background and research are obviously uh, broadcast journalism, but my research focuses on trauma and journalism, so covering of traumatic events such as a shooting on a, a movie set is sort of where my research area lies. Hi, I'm Stephanie Dane-Smith. I'm an associate professor at Kent State, and I teach public relations and global communication, but my real passion is for crisis communication and reputational management. Thank you. Now first, Professor Knobloch, could you give us a rundown of what happened? Of course, new information's coming out every day. We're still not entirely sure of all the details, but if you could explain to our knowledge presently, what happened on the set of Rust? What happened on that day was that the first AD, Dave Halls, he reports that he had grabbed a weapon off of the cart that was left by the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. And he took this weapon and he gave it to Alec Baldwin and said, this is a cold weapon, which means that there are no live rounds in the set. What a live round means on a, on a film set is that the gun is filled with a blank, which is a blank cartridge, which is a cartridge with gunpowder with not a bullet in front of it. Live bullets are never allowed on a set anywhere near a set. So that's what he told Alec Baldwin. And then Alec Baldwin raised the gun and fired it. And it actually had a live round and it's a 45 caliber weapon, which causes an extreme amount of damage. It went right through her and into the director. So that's what actually happened according to investigators and what people have been reporting so far. If everything had gone right that day, what like on a set where guns are being used, what does typical set safety look like? 
The protocols that are in place are enormous, really, and they consume time. And that was one of the factors that might have been in, in how this accident had occurred. What usually happens is that during a rehearsal, live rounds aren't even used. In fact, what usually happens is that the actor holds his finger up and says, bang, bang, during the shot. That's what usually happens. So number one, during a rehearsal, Baldwin never should have, should have even been firing that, that weapon. Uh, secondly, what it usually happens is the person who's in charge of weapons on a set is called the armor. And what, what happens is the armor prepares all the weapons to be to be used for the scene. They personally walk that weapon onto a set. After it's on the set, the first AD takes a look at it. Everybody else takes a look at it. Everybody inspects the weapon. If, again, if it's for rehearsal, it's never used. But once it's going live or a cut, somebody uh, somebody yells out a, an official statement. I forget what it's called, fire in the hole or something like that. Then it takes place. So there's a, a, a much longer protocol. Chris, can I ask you to, if you would uh, think about addressing two points from what we've understood from media coverage? One is that I've read that this was on an accelerated 21-day production schedule, filming schedule. Maybe you know whether that's true or not. Could that have an impact? And then the whole other piece being raised between union and non-union crew, are those things that you think are legitimate tangents or legitimate factors in this tragedy? I, I, th I think it does matter. There was talk, I guess what I've read, was that the budget for this film was, I think, about $6 million. And their shooting schedule for a feature film was 21 days. It's a lot of material they have to shoot, and I think that's absolutely a factor in speeding up the process. For instance, usually what happens with weapons on a set is they have a cold rehearsal where they go through camera movements and then they shoot it. Problem on that day first of all, was that three of the crew members had walked off the set. I, actually, I think it was five, uh, several from the camera department, over a number of grievances, payment, uh, lodging that was changed at the last minute, and another was safety concerns. There was confusion on the set, probably very low morale, but most importantly, they were behind schedule. If three of them, three of the camera department, we're not talking about three PAs who are getting lunch. It's three people in the camera department. They walk off and they're a union. They replace them with non-union people. And those people to get, they had to get locals. So they're obviously behind schedule. I would imagine, and again, I'm guessing, they're setting up this shot and they're going to do a working shooting rehearsal. So they probably set the shot up and they said, working rehearsal, let's just do it. And... That's what probably caused the fatality. And one thing that should be mentioned is that Helena Hutchins stayed that day on the job because if she left along with the rest of the camera department and other people, everybody on the set wouldn't have been paid. So she stayed so she, they would get paid. So she took the hit, so to speak, and stayed. And the crew knew that. And she paid with that decision with her life. There were a mix of union people and non-union people. Sometimes that cross-pollination is fine and it works fine and, it, and it's completely acceptable with lower budgets. But with a situation where you're dealing with a department head, like an armor, it's a really stupid and lethal concoction that they came up with because the armor, first of all, she's 24 years old. She was the daughter of a famous armor, but being the daughter, that's like saying, you know, I'm I'm William Shakespeare's son, Tony, you know, I'm a great writer. Being around sets does, does not, you know, make somebody better. So number one, you need somebody who's extremely experienced. 
Number two, I have read reports because on Facebook, I have some Facebook friends that work in the industry and they know some of the people involved and whatnot. And one of them was really laying the blame really, really almost fully on the armor. She never should have just left a handgun, a revolver, an old style Western 45 caliber revolver on, on a cart. Uh, how can you not check the barrel of a gun to find out that there's actually a live bullet in there. You know, there's three different types of bullets on film sets. There are live rounds, which are basically blanks, which, is, again, is a shell with gunpowder in it. And it just, you know, it blows out gunpowder. That can still be lethal. They're very powerful. You have those rounds. You have dummies, okay? And dummies look like real bullets, but they're just pieces of lead. And they're just used so that when you see, a, like a, particularly a, a revolver, you can see that it looks like there's a bullet in there and there's not. So there's no reason for them to have had actual live bullets as a normal person knows, live bullet, not a blank, a real bullet on this set, other than members of the crew were apparently using the guns to mess around when they weren't shooting. Yeah, that's it. And I, I've never heard of that. This was an egregious, horrible, tragic, stupid mistake on many levels. That, that was a perfect storm, so to speak. It was a perfect storm and and the armor and the producers allowing live ammo on a on a film set to was an armorer who didn't know what she was doing and she was probably very incompetent at the job. I hate to say it, it certainly sounds like she's not only inexperienced but she's incapable in in this situation. Third, the first AD not doing his due diligence. There have been complaints about him on previous films that of unsafe environment, particularly with handguns. And lastly, with uh, Alec Baldwin, and it wasn't his responsibility to check the weapon, but he was also told. But just the luck of where the shot was, was many shots. You know, there's very rare that you get a shot where you're looking right down the barrel of a gun into the lens. And this was just one of those rare shots where that would happen. And he missed the camera and hit her and killed her. So anything that could have gone wrong did so. But all of them, I think, can be traced back to the producers and not hiring the right people and setting up a perfect storm where this could occur. I did want to address one thing that a lot of people are saying that they want to ban guns from from film sets and stuff like that. First of all, it should be it should be noted that real guns are not banned from film sets, but real ammo is. And there hasn't been an incident for 28 years. I, I really think that does speak volumes as to whether they should ban weapons permanently from film sets. I, I think it's, uh, first of all, not realistic. And secondly, I personally feel it's unnecessary. Chris, when you've been talking about this in class, what have you, how have you been telling students what, what lessons should they draw from this? I just tell my students that in the future when they work on films, that people always scream time is money, time is money, and it is. But it's a very unpopular thing to actually say no. And it's a very dangerous thing, particularly for young people who are just getting into the film business. They think they should agree to everything. And people in the film business know that and they prey on those people to try to get things done it happened to me early on and it almost cost me my life on several occasions on on several shows i worked on i tell my students to stand up for themselves in situations that aren't unsafe or to ask questions now professor hoke as a journalism professor we obviously understand why this is so newsworthy everybody recognizes the name alec baldwin like professor knobloch said this is the first time that something like this has happened in more than 20 years what is your perception of the way that this is being covered by the media? I think that 
it's being covered sort of the way I would expect it to be covered. You know, there's, for lack of a better way to put it, there's sort of a, a playbook or a routine that you would follow in any sort of tragedy like this. You're gonna wanna talk to the people involved. You're gonna wanna talk to the surviving victims. You're gonna wanna talk to the family of the one or ones who may have passed away. And in the absence of being able to talk to those sort of primary figures, then you're gonna to start to dig because especially with a story like this that is gonna have so much audience attention drawn to it, you're gonna to wanna to continue to be able to pump out information about it. So when the media can't get to say Alec Baldwin there initially or the director who was shot who hasn't spoken to my understanding yet or to the family of the cinematographer who was killed, they're gonna just start digging and, you know, and bringing up everything that they can find in, in terms of information about what may have happened. You know, and I think that's what we're seeing is they're really kind of casting a wide net, trying to get everything that they can, talking to lots of unnamed people on set, you know, that kind of stuff. And whether or not that actually helps a situation like this is certainly debatable because obviously it was a tragedy. Obviously, something needs to be, they need, the law enforcement needs the opportunity to be able to figure out what happened so that it can't happen again. And sometimes I think that sort of trial by media that happens in the public during coverage like this is not necessarily helpful and certainly not helpful to the people who were there who saw it or to even someone like Alec Baldwin who pulled the trigger and had no idea that was going to happen or to the family of, of the woman who died. And the director who was hurt. So that I think they're doing what I expect them to do, but whether or not that actually has a positive impact on the situation is certainly debatable for sure. Your research specializes in trauma, specifically with journalism, but I guess it's twofold here. How is that applicable to the people who were on set when this happened and the people who are going to set to cover it, trying to get those interviews, trying to get all that information. Sure, sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, I do a lot of study of how witnessing trauma on scene can impact journalists. But in addition to that, the flip side of that is how the journalists on scene, how they react and how they approach the victims or the people involved, that can also have incredibly detrimental effects on that person. For example, you know, the director who has not spoken, I will say has, I think, done an incredibly smart thing because someone who has been shot in a situation like this that never should have happened is not going to be in the best of mental places and probably not going to be in a situation or in a mental state where an interview is going to help how they're feeling. And so I think he's done an incredibly smart thing to, to simply sort of stay out of the spotlight for now. I was thinking sort of immediately of Alec Baldwin when I saw, and I don't know if you guys saw it, sort of someone had snapped a picture or two of him in like the parking lot of the police station and he had his hands in his hair and he was absolutely distraught. You know, and I felt for him. And, you know, I don't know Alec Baldwin. My understanding is he could be kind of a jerk sometimes. But at the same time, he's a human and he was a human in distress. And so the first thing I thought of when I saw those pictures is that they should not have been necessarily taken because he was clearly upset. And I think now that I look, you know, how he's sort of putting stuff out on social media and, and kind of putting tidbits out here and there, I don't know that it's helping him for the media to continue to prod him, despite the fact that he's a public figure and he's supposed to be a, you know, a Hollywood actor and he's an A-lister, you know, whatever you want to say, he's a human. And I don't think the media attention and media focus on him 
is helping at all because at the end of the day, he's a guy who shot and killed somebody and didn't want to be and didn't wake up in the morning thinking he would be big time Hollywood name to a guy who shot and killed somebody. That's, I think, shows when you start to see that kind of erratic behavior, I think that's the type of thing that's really weighing on him and that constant media attention is not helping at all. Both Professor Hoke and Professor Smith, does Alec Baldwin, being an A-lister, being a household name, in what ways do you think his reputation affects this situation and the media's perception, the public's perception of both him, film sets, this film in particular? I think his stature automatically makes it that much more newsworthy. I think you get a lot of coverage of this if it happened on like an indie set or with some lesser known actors. I'm sure it would be covered. But the fact that it was Alec Baldwin, who everybody knows, I think has just sort of skyrocketed this in terms of the amount of coverage and the staying power. You know, the sheer amount of of time that this has been in the news cycle, I think is a complete reflection of the fact that an A-list, very recognizable actor was involved, for sure. I agree with Professor Hoke. And let me just add, there's certainly another dimension to Alec Baldwin that we have to consider, and that's that he's a highly politicized actor. I mean, he he satirically played Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live, and it did not take long for former President Trump and his son, Donald Jr., to seize upon this and to get their ammunition out there. While President Trump is not on Twitter right now, his son is. And perhaps some of you saw his son's uh, rather infamous recent tweet, which is, guns don't kill people, Alec Baldwin kills people. So there's no way to divorce the celebrity factor that Professor Hoke spoke of, but also to, to divorce the fact that Alec Baldwin is political, politicized, and controversial well before this happened. So all of those things are angles to the story and they allow a political dimension that might not otherwise be part of this story or might not be as relevant to this story. Professor Smith, from a crisis communication standpoint, where do you even start here? This is a big issue for the studio, including this egregious loss of life in addition to people on set walking out, these questionable safety practices, where do we begin? That's a very good question, Maddie. And I think that you begin with some basic principles. One is this notion that you always start with transparency. The classic advice in crisis communication, and especially in corporate crisis communication, and let's remember movie studios are corporations, media is a corporation. The classic advice is tell it first, tell it fast, tell it fully. But that bromide falls apart very, very quickly because the fact of the matter is almost every crisis unfolds unpredictably, unfolds in stages that that aren't as fast as we like. And the best advice we give crisis communicators is don't wait for all the facts to come out. You have to say something because silence is often seen as uh, guilt, as, as, as the wrong kind of compliance, as it, people fill that vacuum with motives that may not be the case at all. As Professor Hoke explained, it, it's, it's a tragedy. It's a human tragedy. And, and sometimes strategic silence is really good advice. But most of the time in crisis counsel, we remind clients that there are two courts that really matter. There's the court of law, 
We don't know how that will play out. There's a lot of buzz out there about how there might be charges of involuntary manslaughter levied here sooner or later against the armor or against others. Who knows? But what we do know is that this course has, this tragedy has already hit the court of public opinion and hit it hard. And you cannot ignore that court. You do so at your own peril. Very often, a lawyer's advice is be silent. Not all the details are out there. Anything you could say will incriminate you. And that's surely true. But we know that there's a court of public opinion that is always voraciously hungry. And it's already working overtime with, as, as you all noted, lots of social media experts and lots of people who weren't on the movie set who have expertise but weren't there, weren't eyewitnesses, who are not hesitating for a moment to weigh in. You have to really think about how you want to manage that situation. There's been a loss of life. There has been, it's not just an actor, but an actor who was one of the producers. So there's an accountability stream to be considered there. There's the political ramifications. But here's the other part that is interesting, Maddie, and to my colleagues. Almost immediately, this became a wider story. What we always teach in crisis management is that crises are rarely isolated events. They become part of a widening and spreading story. Immediately, this became a spreading story. I remember the first time, the very night that it happened, I think it was the evening of October 21st, that Rachel Maddow on MSNBC began her show by talking about pandemic labor unrest and unfair, unsafe work conditions. And her boom moment was bringing it right back to the set of rust as sort of the culminating tragedy that inevitably occurs. So here's a whole stream of labor unrest issues from meat packing to frontline workers, and it's all delivered to the set of rust. Here's what inevitably occurs when people don't pay attention to worker rights. Here's what happens when workplace safety is ignored. So this crisis widens in unpredictable ways. One of the most important things they can do is is to regularly comment as effectively and sensitively as they can. And we talk about the fact that silence is dangerous in these situations, but let me just add here an 800-pound gorilla in this already monstrous scenario is the impromptu press availability being also dangerous. I think we've probably all seen over the weekend uh, that Alec spoke to reporters in what looked like a driveway, perhaps in his home in Vermont. And his wife, Alaria, was there with him. She was talking as well and taking video. It looked, it appeared like she was using her phone to take video. Was as chaotic an event as I could imagine. So if the studio does not assertively manage communication, you're going to have freelancers who do. And that is not just freelance experts on social media who invent and embellish an already tragic story, but that is also some of the main characters themselves who are, can be, especially celebrity, can be notoriously hard to manage. So the sooner the studio decides on a communication strategy, the better from a public relations and crisis communication management. The, the notion of we've got to protect the industry, we've got to protect it against unwanted and unwarranted legislation and regulation. I understand that, it's important. But circling the wagons and allowing some folks, including your star, 
to freelance in that setting. I wonder if my colleagues saw some of that, uh, the outtakes of that video. It's, it's a disastrous press availability. It's certainly not the message that a calmer Alec Baldwin, I think, would want to send, a less traumatized Alec Baldwin would want to send. It certainly isn't a message the studio would want to send. So assemble the facts, get very, very good counsel, but to begin to have a media plan and a communication strategy. It is not too early, and every day may make it a little bit too late. Where Chris cites the axiom, uh, time is money, in this case, time is trauma. It is more trauma, it is more damage, and you have to really measure that and think, think about how this could spread because, because of who Alec Baldwin is, because these are highly divisive, politicized times, and because some people, including people on the set, are going to freelance their own communication. So you really do need a strong management plan, even if you don't know all the facts yet. I wonder if my colleagues would agree with that or if they would chew on my leg over that. Yeah. No, I actually was thinking I would add on to what you were saying specifically about Alec Baldwin's kind of, you know, incident there, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, you're right, the the trial by media far outweighs that trial by court that you mentioned. And all of those players who feel like they could have that blame turned on them are going to try to find ways to get their story out there. So I even saw today, for example, the lawyers for the armor were talking and suggesting it was sabotage. You know, they're all trying to, to position themselves. And that's, for, for better or worse, that the media is going to jump on that because again they need to fill the right, vacuum right. in terms of the need for information and so you know Alec Baldwin shows up in his driveway they're going to be there in a in a better world the journalist would be able to look at him and understand what he went through and think to themselves maybe we shouldn't show this you know here is a person who is struggling here is a person who is not right and as rightfully so shouldn't it should not be right after what happened but is clearly not right And are we exploiting that trauma and are we adding to it by putting this man on television and by covering this and by showing him and, and, you know, having it go out on on social media? You know, unfortunately, that's not the case. You know, the journalists aren't going to step back and be like, you know what, I I feel like we shouldn't shoot this. You know, this is going to be make matters worse, you know, they're, they're going to jump right on it. And, you know, so unfortunately, like you said, people are going to freelance and the media are oh, so ready to, to jump in and take advantage of that freelancing. And I think much to the detriment of the people involved, especially those who are, you know, the ones that are very, very close to it and have the ability to have the blame or the focus turned on them for sure. It, it, isn't, it isn't just the media either. We are consumers of this information and we, the media wouldn't be covering it as extensively if we recoiled from the story. I have a question for you. Do you think that depending upon people's political affiliation, because Alec Baldwin is such a polarizing figure, that this story is going to linger longer for for some groups, and then others, they're going to forget about it, or B, want to forget about it. I think A and B, can I do that? Don't all our students want to do that? I definitely think B, that there will be some groups who want to forget about this, but I think it will linger longer, not only because of his celebrity, as, as Dr. Hoke said, but because he is polarizing, and that gives legs to a story. It gives legs to a story. My forecast is 
he himself will give legs to this story, not wanting to, but if he doesn't get really good counsel really, really fast, he's going to inadvertently give legs to this story. Do I believe people on the opposite political spectrum of his will want this to last a lot longer? You bet. My advocacy students are already talking about it today, and they reminded me that both sides are using this issue. You know, people who are for tighter gun control and people who are very much against it. They, they're both already seizing on this issue. That gives it additional life as well. Do you think this is going to destroy his career? No, no, I don't. I, I do think it will be a while, but I'm always proven wrong by, by uh, the entertainment industry. But I do think it'll be a while until Alec Baldwin is prominently featured, and I think it'll be an even longer while until he is in a comedy. I think once upon a time, it would have maybe been worse for him the more he appears kind of undone in the media. But to circle back to that idea of social media, it gives him his own voice. So he could, you know, continue to kind of spiral and the media can sort of pounce on that and watch it happen. But ultimately, when this does die down, he's going to have that channel and to, to continue to reach out and continue to sort of put his brand, for lack of a better way to put it out there. So I think there is less of a chance now, given our media climate and all of the, the ways that, that people can just directly reach the audience. I think that there is less of a chance now that this is career ending for him than maybe it would have been pre-Twitter, Facebook, Insta, you know, all those things. I agree. I don't think it will be. But we have a whole new expectation of revel in alternative facts and alternative narratives. But this is another framing of this that's quite classic is the who done it. The classic who done it, who's responsible? Will Alec Baldwin take a fall? No, it'll be some 24-year-old armorer who takes the fall. So all of these wrinkles will come into it and it cause the public to have an appetite for this. The longer the studio, the production team, whoever is going to be in charge in communication in this, the longer they let people, including Alec Baldwin and Hilaria Baldwin freelance, the more messy this is going to get. And it will have implications in the court of law as well. The court of political of public opinion is already solidifying, maybe not a unitary view, but people are taking sides already. And that's a hard thing. And, and you've got to keep reminding yourself, there's, there's a tragic death of a young woman, a promising talent who has a husband and a little boy. But that gets lost in the larger framing of the whodunit. Remember, we have a huge appetite that is insatiable for this kind of thing. If you think um, not celebrities, but Gabby Petito and her her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, I remember after his, his bones or his body was found, CNN opened their news segment that said, and I, I just kind of laughed to myself, it said, where does the Brian Laundrie case go next? Well, perhaps a funeral home, you know, I mean, but it, it suggests that there's an interest and in that media is responding to our consumption of that. And it's got some tragic consequences that if not managed by the studio, will have real business practice consequences too, I fear. And maybe uh, fear is the wrong word. Maybe they should because everything uh, Professor Knobloch explained is the perfect storm. Maybe there should be some consequences here, but we can also overcorrect. And if we don't 
make sure that we think about how we are going to strategically communicate what happened, why it happened, and by the way, the actions we're taking. It is never enough to say we're fully cooperating. I have never known people who don't say we're, uh, well, let me take that back. There are some mafia figures who might have not said we're fully cooperating. We could think of other celebrities who might not have said we're fully cooperating, but it's almost become like a public apology. No one really puts any stock in that. And so you have to avoid some of those trite sayings when you're dealing with with something of this kind of significance and and this profound tragedy. One thing that's interesting that you bring up, you bring up the idea that the studio should control the message somehow. Manage. Um, Manage. Yes. I think the interesting twist here is the advent of the breakup of the studios with uh, digital platforms. What happens is that the bottom has really fallen out to Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these platforms. So what you have is you don't have a studio in the situation, I don't think. You have people who were fellow producers for the production company that Alec Baldwin was working with. And they, all of the the blame being focused on Alec Baldwin right now. They will take that because these, these producers are definitely going to be culpable in the situation and them controlling the message is not protecting the studio it's helping the studio by having alec baldwin go and keep talking his his wife was like yeah you were right it's chaos like she, she was in the, coming up right. to him, like literally right. in the middle of it saying right. like get off right. get off stop talking because he starts saying things like we were a well-oiled machine and you know they were obviously not a well-oiled machine and he was one of the producers it should be noted that usually when celebrities come on as producers they're usually used as either executive producers people who have money or people who have a name and their their name is being used to draw more money in it's really nebulous as to what Alex's situation was as a producer on this. I know there were several producers, but the focus is really going to be on them because it's obvious that woman who was the armor never should have been hired. So here's another perfect storm, Professor Knobloch, because you bring up such a fascinating point. There is no studio. But someone, and and let me be clear, you can't control the communication in a crisis. Go ahead and try. You're going to blow up. But you have to manage your own statements, you have you really have to manage your fate to the, the extent you can without ever believing you're going to control the media. But without that kind of system, then everybody's a freelancer. So here's another, to use your analogy, another example of a perfect storm. Uh, what you have to hope for is that some of these uh, producers have hired their own professional, not publicists, but crisis management. It was not for nothing that Penn State, when they went through the Jerry Sandusky trauma, hired teams of professionals because they understood that there was a lot at stake, that there could be a lot of indirect damage done to people who had nothing to do with this and that they needed advice. If what you have is a scenario where you have producers who are not backed by any kind of corporate system, who might be perfectly happy with allowing the light to be distracted from them. That is, to me, another tragedy within a tragedy, in that there'll be no smart communication, that it's every man man and woman and person for themselves in reputation management, and that there's going to be an awful lot 
of unintended casualties and harm done here. That's that's my assessment and my concern. And it's in this entertainment. Yes, and we don't mind watching it, right? We don't mind watching it, and and that says something about us as well. I, I mean, I think even the the setup was it's like a setup for like a, a murder she wrote. Yeah. Here's the the cart. It's left out. Who put the bullet in it? Like it's you couldn't. You couldn't write this stuff. You wouldn't believe it would actually happen. And, and that's why media framing is such an important topic when we teach, and we teach this in advocacy a lot. Understand that stories have frames. They don't naturally fall in that frame. We intellectually force them into those frames. And this frame of whodunit, or as, as Professor Knobloch says, murder she wrote, it's, it's the perfect frame, right? And there's a couple frames you could have here. One of them is that the instability frame, right? The instability frame that will follow Alec Baldwin and what will come up soon. I'm just waiting for this. As I was thinking about this conversation today, I was thinking soon we'll be reminded by the media of his own very aggressive, ugly, highly publicized comments to his own daughter, Ireland. That will come out soon because the crisis will widen and frames are already starting to gel. And one of those frames is this this murder mystery, which probably has no mystery other than incompetence. And the other frame is unstable, entitled Hollywood. We love a good Hollywood frame. So it's fascinating to me. All of you have the expertise to answer this question. So you could each give your two cents. Social media, there's so many dimensions to the way that this is being covered on social media. Like you said, the public is rabid. Everybody's checking Twitter, checking different news outlets for information. And there's all sorts of information. There's all sorts of different storylines that are being woven. How has social media and the conversation on social media about all of those different things affected, exacerbated the situation? I think the... I think it has exacerbated the situation for sure because it gives all the major players an automatic pipeline to the public and to the media. So anytime any of these people, whether they are the major players in this or like the tiny little peon sort of guy on the set who carried the coffee one time on the third day of shooting, you know, they everybody gets to talk, right? Everybody gets to share their story and there is no verification of the authenticity of that story or, you know, any verification whatsoever. So I think it exacerbates the situation because the media is going to jump on that, not verify it, not try to do anything other than then amplify it, bring it even more attention than maybe it deserves. So, you know, I think the social media, as lovely as it as it may be for certain things, I think definitely in a, in a tragic case like this, it only makes things worse because it's only going to increase the finger pointing and the sort of like covering of everyone's own butts and, you know, just trying to get your voice out there and, you know, and capitalize on the situation too. And social media is just a channel to make that happen and the media will will go right for it. I, I will just add that social media will keep the story alive. It will intensify it. It will ensure that we stay at a superficial level that will drown in conspiracy, and some of the real legitimate questions may never get adequate focus. But wouldn't we be lucky if it turns out that Q from QAnon was behind this whole thing? It would be the perfect solution to the social media dilemma. Uh, to me, I, I, I just, I would love that. You know, I'd be all over that myself. But I do think there are real questions, real equities, real issues, real changes that need to happen. But when things are prosecuted as they are on social media, we tend to stay more superficial 
and we tend to gravitate from theory to theory. Everybody's an expert, and pretty soon everybody believes they witnessed it and they have a stake in it. And the real issues get far less attention. We get very, very focused when a flight goes down and there's tragedy and all the recovery efforts. And the real question six months later of what really went wrong tends not to get as much focus. I hope that makes sense. But that's one of the things I worry about with excessive social media coverage. (laughs) I, I, one, I, one thing I would like to add is that social media is a particularly dangerous place to be for this echo chamber, is the fact that people completely become polarized, not only politically in the country, but on social media. We're just like feeding, feeding, feeding one message and having, having it reinforced by people actually agreeing with, you know, with the same information, which could be false or not. And meanwhile, it's all over this woman who who tragically lost her life, who was supposed to be an amazing woman, like an amazing young rising DP, uh, Holly Hutchins. People spoke volumes of, of, of how wonderful she was, how great a person she was, and how hard a worker she was. She just wanted to get the job done. I think this is an important story, a relevant story that our students should learn from. And I think it, it's interdisciplinary. There's something here in everything we teach that requires us to handle this and handle it sensitively, not because it's getting media pop, but because there are some real lessons here. Thank you guys all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Around the Sphere. Please send us your thoughts, comments, and feedback at mdjpodcast at kent.edu. Music for this podcast was written and produced by Assistant Professor Scott Hallgren. This episode was produced by Nicholas Underwood, Digital Media Production Major. And our podcast project manager is Kimmy Daniels, Public Relations Major. This podcast was advised by Associate Professor Luke Armour. Special thanks to all the students, faculty, and staff who made this episode possible. And a very special thanks to you for listening. We'll see and hear you around the sphere. Thank you.